welcome to the Matrix Law Pod with me, Richard Hermer, Mary Hunt and Helen Manfield. And we're going to be joined in a moment by Professor David Cole, Legal Director of the American Civil Liberties Union. Now, if you can remember as far back as the days in which we were actually allowed to meet our friends for coffee and conversation, then you may have had the same experience as me, in which, try as hard as you may, no conversation about politics could last more than two minutes without somebody mentioning the T word. Indeed, I'm not sure we've broken that rule in our podcasts, even when the subject has been the impact of, on the rule of law in Hungary or, say, India, or where we've been considering the impact of data tracking, the spectre of Donald Trump has loomed large in the background. Now, in this pod, we're going to address the issue directly and turn to the United States and examine its response to the COVID crisis and what it tells us, not simply about the strength of rule of law there, but what the consequences of the US experience might be for the rest of us and the international legal order. Now, inevitably, much of that conversation will focus on the impact of one individual, but we don't want to lose sight of what's perhaps more important to understand, namely the social, political and economic movement that propelled him into the most powerful office on the planet in the first place. The United States is a source of huge fascination to all of us interested in international human rights, It's always presented as a paradox. On the one hand, it has been the propeller for much of the international human rights law framework. It has, through government and indeed non-governmental organisations, promoted the protection and enforcement of universal human rights uh, with a power and effectiveness that no other country could wield. Indeed, much of the international order has now depended upon US engagement. As Samantha Power has brilliantly illustrated in her book, A Problem from Hell, Mere abstention by the United States in an international human rights crisis can lead, in effect, to green lighting of genocide and crimes against humanity. On the other hand, though, throughout its modern history, at least, the United States have been responsible for acts that have, to put it neutrally, undermined the very fabric of international law, whether through unjustified invasions of other countries, Iraq just being the latest of a rather undistinguished list, to propping up dictatorships with appalling human rights records, to withdraw from international treaties such as the Paris Agreement, and as we've seen in recent weeks, open hostility to international organisations that have the temerity to criticise it or threaten its sovereignty. What we want to explore today are really two aspects of the US body politics seen through this prism of its reaction to the COVID crisis. The first, looking at the United States domestically, how respect for rule of the law and its institutions is faring, and what the responses to the crisis tell us about its future. And secondly, what are we learning through this crisis about the role of the United States in the international order? And what does it tell us of how the world might look if the Republicans retain the White House and the Senate this coming November? Joining us to help Murray, Helen and I navigate these issues is Professor David Cole, National Legal Director of the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, the United States' most well-known and longest established civil liberties NGO. Before taking up his current role, David had an illustrious career in human rights, spanning a number of fields. A lawyer taking on groundbreaking cases for the Centre of Constitutional Rights, an academic, most recently Professor of Law and Public Policy at Georgetown and also one of the most thoughtful and insightful writers in books and essays on law and international affairs, not least responses to terrorism in the post-9-11 world. David's essays in the New York Review of Books are always the first articles I turn to and present as some of the most important contributions on the rule of law and responses to terror in print. 
David, we are delighted you could join us here. Thanks for having me. Can I start domestically, as I said? Um, now, in the United Kingdom, we've only had really rather recent experience of what devolved and regional power looks like. Um, the United States is markedly different. We see a, a federal response from the administration and federal agencies, such as the CDC, to this crisis, but also separate and on occasion what appear to be conflicting responses from state governors and indeed on a local level down to kind of local mayors. Can you help describe for the uh, uninitiated in Britain what's going on here constitutionally? Who has the power to regulate in response to this crisis? So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a complicated uh, uh, system that we have. Uh, the, the president doesn't understand it. He uh, asserted absolute authority uh, at, at some point to open up the country. But in fact, he has no such uh, authority. Our, we have a very devolved system of power in which states uh, exercise plenary authority over policing, over public health, uh, and the like with respect to their citizens. We have a federal government, um, and the federal government can act. Congress can uh, legislate uh, for problems of national um, scope, but they cannot require state officials to carry out federal mandates. They have to carry them out themselves. So, for example, immigration law states, many states and many localities have said, we will not enforce federal immigration law. We think it undermines our ability to enforce our own laws. And that's perfectly within their prerogative because it's a federal law. The federal government can send out federal officials to arrest immigrants, but it cannot require state police or uh, city uh, police to to arrest an immigrant for being uh, out of status. So um, it is a very devolved system. And that poses some challenges uh, when you have a, a, a challenge like this, which is really um, requires in many ways a nationwide response. David, can I just um, take you up on this point that um, we watched with some astonishment when Trump said he had absolute authority, even those of us who are not top experts on the US Constitution didn't think that that was how it worked. But um, we also know that you have a more overtly politicized judiciary than we have in this country. I mean, how likely, if that were to be tested, would the courts be to say, no, you do not, and this is, these are the limits of federal um, authority and presidential authority? No, that's, that's an interesting question. It's always risky to, to predict, but uh, the, the principle of devolved power that the states have uh, a certain uh, set of authorities that the federal government cannot um, commandeer is a very strongly held principle among the very conservative justices who would otherwise uh, be inclined to support President Trump. So it would be uh, it would be it would, you know a test of their principles against their uh, politics. So they're all great proponents of the concept of state rights. They are, but I but I would also say that Trump, you know, as 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 Trump often does, and, and sorry, we've now used the T word, yeah. but uh, as Trump often does. He backed off. Uh, he makes these extraordinary and, and really ignorant assertions of authority, but he doesn't actually take action based upon them. At some point, somebody says to him, wait a minute, Mr. President, you don't actually have that authority. You can't do that. Uh, and then he backs off. So, in fact, he has not compelled anybody to uh, reopen. Um, but what he can do uh, and what, you know, the, what presidents have always done is sort of set a tone. 
And many, many uh, governors will follow the tone that the president sets. They'd, you know, be just as happy to sort of put the responsibility on the guy in Washington uh, and follow his lead. And so, you know, he's now been sending very mixed messages. He's now, you know, the CDC, uh, our, our public health people are saying, you know, you shouldn't reopen. You shouldn't lift shelter in place laws until you've had 14 days of uh, declining uh, um, uh, incidents. And, and he's saying, no, open up, open up. And, and, and a number of the states, particularly the Republican states, are indeed opening up uh, very likely far too early in light of the public health authorities. But it really is a patchwork. Um, you know, and in some sense, in some contexts that works, right? In some contexts, we are a very big country. There are very different conditions in Alaska and Mississippi and New Hampshire. And so it makes sense to devolve authority to make decisions to those particular jurisdictions. But where you've got, you know, a, a contagious virus that doesn't recognize state borders, um, it's much more problematic. Can I ask you the position with the ACLU in terms of the restrictions that are being put in place? I mean, we chatted over previous weeks to lawyers from a kind of a range of jurisdictions where there have been concerns that the restrictions that were being put in place were too onerous or were outside any recognizable legal framework. You've obviously got in the United States a kind of a long tradition of protecting civil liberties, at least for those who are enfranchised. Um, you've got the First Amendment rights to uh, uh, assembly, etc. What, what's the what's the stance been thus far of civil society in the ACLU to the measures that have been imposed? So it's interesting. I mean, in one sense, you know, I, I have certainly, in my, you know, in my 60 plus years on this earth, have never lived in a more restricted uh, liberties environment than I do right now today in Washington, D.C. I, you know, I can't go to work. I can't go to uh, stores I want to go to. I can't go meet my friends. I can't ha have a di dinner out, etc. I can't go to the movies. Um, but I understand those restrictions. Uh, I think those restrictions are justified. Uh, and I think we at the ACLU believe they are justified by the public health consensus that this is a deadly contagious disease that is invisible, that is spread through community uh, 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 people getting together, and, and, and that really the, the responsible, uh, and in some sense the only responsible uh, way to deal with it at this point is in fact to have these strict, stringent limits. Now, the other thing I will say is I take some comfort in the fact that these measures apply across the board. You know, as compared, think back to 9-11, post 9-11, where, you know, it was the last time we had to confront a major crisis that it had major civil liberties implications. At that time, whose rights were being <coughs> um, uh, sacrificed? The rights of Arab and Muslim immigrants, by and large, um, not the rest of us not Americans at large. And in that context, where you have a scapegoated minority that is being singled out for the sacrifice of its rights in the name of everybody else's interests, the political system doesn't balance very well and you get lots of overreaction. Here, by contrast, these measures, these sheltered home-in-place measures, they affect all of us. They affect the rich, they affect the poor, they affect every citizen. And so there is we all care about being safe. We all care about not getting the disease. 
but we also all care about our jobs, uh, our, our liberties. And so I think that, you know, you're less likely to get the kind of that kind of abuse in this setting. And you see that already in the, you know, in fact, they're probably making errors the other way. That is lifting restrictions before it's responsible to do so. But so the, the ACLU might be relaxed about the restrictions, but we can see on our TV screens that that's not a universal position in America. We've we've got the pictures of armed militias and state capitals demanding that uh, economies are open, shops are open, people can go about their normal business. Um how do we understand what's going on? It would seem to be, is it a, 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 a left-right divide that's emerging? Is it those who support Trump and those who don't? Is it libertarianism, which has got a, obviously a long historical strain in America? How, how, do, how do we understand what we're seeing? Well, I think the first thing to be said is it is a minority. It is a loud minority. It is a minority whose voices and actions are, um, are you know, uh, multiplied through social media. So, you know, I think people have a greater sense of, uh, of what it portends than what it actually uh, represents. So when you look at polls, the vast majority of Americans, both Democrat and Republican, uh, agree that the shelter in place rules are, uh, make sense. And even in those states where Republican governors have kind of followed Trump's lead and said, I'm going to open up. You're not seeing a lot of people going out. You're seeing mostly people staying in and not, in fact, going out because they recognize that these are legitimate. Those, you know, that those groups, by and large, seem to be the libertarian slash extreme right slash uh, white supremacist slash, you know, gun right uh, uh, absolutists. They're the ones that sort of, you know, that just have never believed in government in any respect uh, whatsoever and never believed in collective uh, sacrifice. Uh, you know, they believe in their own individual liberties, full stop, and they are protesting. But, you know, I don't think they're scary uh, in terms of the, the images they put, they project, but I don't think it's a real uh, movement in this country. So let's move from the man in the Montana hut to the man in the large white residence in D.C., um, and uh, just want to ask about aspects of his response um, and how they mirror what were kind of more profound concerns that many of us have about his administration. I mean, the first is that he hasn't let up his attacks during the crisis on the institutions of justice, um, whether that's the law enforcement, the FBI, or indeed judges. Uh, we're speaking the day after the Attorney General Barr has dropped the case against Michael Flynn, the former National Security Advisor, um, who Trump had been tweeting about uh, for, 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 for particularly past days, but also weeks and months. Um, uh, the case dropped notwithstanding he pleaded guilty. What's going on here, um, both in respect of that case, but more generally the attacks by the administration on the levers of justice, that maybe it's just a peculiarly English notion of separation of powers, but it would seem worrying that that's a new strain in American politics. It's deeply worrying. Uh, you know, the, President Trump, I mean, what we're seeing from President Trump in the pandemic is what we have seen from President Trump from day one, which is 
uh, a, a, a disregard for constitutional norms, a disregard for the kind of informal separation of powers that have long been seen as central to the way our government works. So, you know, the, what you point to is a, is a great example. The Justice Department is part of the executive branch. The Attorney General, you know, is in the president's cabinet. He is the president's employee. Um, you know, at the end of the day, when when a when a prosecution is brought by the United States against an individual, it's brought in the name of the United States. It's brought in the name of the executive branch. The president is the head of the executive branch. But we have long recognized that we don't want the president, the political head of the United States, to be making decisions about criminal prosecutions. And so we've respected a very important kind of distance between the Justice Department and the president. And even within the Justice Department, between the attorney general and the uh, U.S. attorneys who um, who are the principal prosecutors around the country in each jurisdiction who bring cases on behalf of the United States. They act with a tremendous degree of independence, and we see that as important. It's not in the Constitution, but it's a constitutional norm, I think. And President Trump has just thrown that uh, by the wayside. And, you know, he had his first attorney general, uh, a man named uh, William Beauregard uh, 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 Jeffrey Sessions, uh, was um, a very, very uh, pro-Trump senator before he was appointed. He was, uh, you know, anti-immigrant, tough on crime, um, you know, furthered all of Trump's policy agendas, defended Trump down the line, including the Access Hollywood tape, which he said, you know, famously, Jeff Sessions said that uh, assertion by President Trump that he could grab women uh, you know, uh, with, because of who he was, was not, would not be a sexual assault. So that's what Jeff Sessions said. So he, this is a loyalist to the core. But, but, but Jeff Sessions, as attorney general, nonetheless felt that it was important to uphold the integrity and the independence of the Justice Department. And that's why he was essentially. By recusing himself from the, uh, the, the, the investigation. Exactly. He recused himself and, and, and he, and, and, and he, that was in, in view of this very important norm, which even he respected, but precisely because he respected that. And even though he otherwise carried out every one of Trump's, you know, sort of policy mandates, Trump got rid of him, put Barr in place. Barr has been exactly what, you know, Sessions was trying not to be, uh, which is just a, you know, yes man to President Trump. And, you know, the notion that they would drop a prosecution against a man who has already pled guilty to twice lying to the FBI, right? The FBI's job is to investigate crimes for the attorney general. If people can lie to the, the FBI without any consequence, that really undermines their ability to do their job. And yet we've let him off because the president wanted him to be. Can I ask about another facet of this, uh, which is the rush by the, the Senate to approve right-wing, very young judges. I mean, it's been a kind of a, an exercise in power play by Mitch McConnell, the majority leader, in the way that he has single-mindedly focused um, on that. And there's a case coming, a, a, a Senate confirmation coming up, I think, for a very young, seemingly wholly unqualified uh, a, a judge to sit on the second highest court, the D.C. Um, appeals. Rather than that case in particular, can I, can I just ask you, 
Obviously, this isn't the first administration to want to appoint judges in their political favour. You have a politicised judiciary, at certainly at this kind of federal and Supreme Court level. But are we seeing something, is this of a different nature, what we're seeing at the moment with Mitch McConnell and the move for young, very ideological judges? Or has this always been the case? And after that, I really want to know what your concerns are, irrespective of what political view they have, but the fact that there has been this rush yeah, so it is. It is different. Um, you know, I think it's it's different really for there's two real two reasons. One is we have in the United States and become over the last fifty years a much more deeply deeply polarized uh, society where uh, you know if you are liberal you are a Democrat and if you are conservative you are a Republican and 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 there's never the twain shall meet. That was not the case. You know, even 30 years ago, they were conservative Democrats. They were liberal Republicans. It was a mix, more of a mixed bag and less partisan divide. So that partisan divide is one factor. Um, but the second factor is that the um, there is no longer a filibuster requirement uh, within the Senate for approval of judicial nominees. So what the filibuster requirement meant in practice was that in order to get a nominee approved, a president had to get 60 votes out of 100. Not 50, one, but 61 votes um, in, the, in the Senate in order to get somebody approved. The, the parties rarely have had a 61 uh, majority, 61 vote majority. So, so for Obama to get uh, uh, an, uh, an appointee confirmed to the to any court, he would have to appeal to some Republican senators, right? He couldn't just do it by dem- with Democratic senators. And that led to a more moderate, uh, with mo- a moderating influence. You also had a, a tradition of deference to state senators uh, in terms of they could essentially mix certain um, ju- certain nominees. And so if you were in a, new, in a state with two Democratic senators and you had a Republican president, he had to actually talk to the Democratic senators and ask them, you know, could you live with this person? I know it's not the person you would pick, but could you live with them? And, you know, and that also had a moderating influence. Both of those practices are gone. Uh, they got rid of the, um, the filibuster at the, near the end of the Obama administration because the Republicans were using it to block any nominees of Obama. They were using it not the way it was meant to be used, but just to be totally obstreperous. So then the Democrats got rid of it. It's now gone. And this is the first Trump administration, the first administration that has been able to operate under a 51 vote requirement with a 51 vote majority in the Senate with a party that will act totally down the line on party grounds. And so they can put literally anybody on the court, and that's what they've done. And and they and then Trump has basically delegated the job to a right-wing group called the Federalist Society, which has just identified here are the most extreme, youngest, uh, often brightest, and they're not many of them are very very bright, uh, you know, not not but 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 very very uh, hard right ideologically, and it you know it will transform the courts for years to come. David, can I um just pick up on on your points about polarization? Um, and uh, democratic populism. Um, it's uh, been quite hard to keep track of the number of different assaults on the rule of law that have been emanating from the president's office over the last few years. Um, but I'm quite interested in this um, 
phenomenon, the Republicans for the Rule of Law group um, emerging, which seems to be also quite well funded and quite high profile. Um, and I'm just wondering from a distance whether the assaults have been so outrageous in some ways that perhaps they are paradoxically building some basis for a future cross-party consensus about the importance of some of these things? Um, or is that sort of um, grasping for shreds of comfort? No, I think that's actually, um, I think there's a real possibility there. Um, you know, uh, if you look at the sort of, the, the Republicans for the rule of law tend to be a group of Republicans who were very strong conservatives, um, but just cannot abide by the kind of narcissism, the, you know, norm throwing out the, you know, populism that uh, President Trump represents. He is not a conservative with a small c. He is a populist with a big P and a mo mostly a narcissist with a big N. And so you've seen, you know, if you look at the, 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 the op-ed pages, for example, the Washington Post and New York Times, which have conservative columnists who were, you know, pro-Reagan, pro-Bush, uh, anti-Obama, they are, they're virtually all of the conservative columnists are against Trump. They are some of his harshest critics, you know, David Frum, Michael Gerson, Bill Kristol, these were leading lights of the uh, conservatives and, and parties, uh, George Will, and they are highly critical of President Trump. So there is a, uh, a significant part of the Republican Party that really cannot abide President Trump. You know, whether this will lead to some kind of, you know, consensus uh, about the, the importance of these norms and the importance of the rule of law, and I, you know, I think the answer will be, uh, we'll find the answer in November. Uh, because if the American people um, throw him out and vote in, and we see a blue wave and vote in a, a, a you know, not, re return the Democrats to the to the House, but also you know take the Senate and vote in Joe Biden, I think that will be seen as a rejection of what President Trump stood for. If, by contrast, the American people reelect the president. Uh, then we are essentially doubling down. Then we are saying, go for it. And, and, and there will then be no constraints on what President Trump will do because he can't even run for re-election. Can I ask you about that kind of a pessimistic scenario? It's either that Trump is elected or a Supreme Court vacancy becomes available before January, even assuming Biden wins, but there's before yeah. the inauguration, because I think one can assume that um, the Senate won't block in the way they blocked Merrick Garland no. in the last the last few months of the Obama or last twelve months of the Obama That's administration, yeah, yeah. Yeah. so um, let's assume that were to happen, uh, and it entrenches a conservative majority. Another very right wing young justice is placed on the court in the context of an increasingly right wing young judiciary across the federal bench more generally. How does that play out from a respect from the rule of law perspective in a country where in the last five elections, sorry, I beg your pardon, the last six elections, the Democrats have won a majority of votes. So the majority of voters are, are, are not voting for the governing party who is appointing judges and which the demographics in America long term, again, look towards kind of a more growing progressive base. Yeah. How, do, how is that disconnect between what will be 20 year phenomena of a right-wing inbuilt majority in federal courts 
not reflecting the, the kind of social mores of the general population? When, I mean, what are the concerns there from a rule of law perspective? Well, I, 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 I devoutly hope that uh, we will never face that, that uh, RBG uh, holds on until January uh, and, and, uh, and, and we have a different president in power and, and we won't have to face that. Should we have to face that, um, uh, it will be very interesting to see what, uh, what, what, what it will, um, you know, portend. I mean, the, you know, I, when you look, when political scientists look at how the Supreme Court has ruled over the course of its 200 plus year history here in the United States, what they find generally is that the court is a conservative institution. There's really only been one point in time when it was a real sort of force for progressive social change, and that was the Warren Court during the uh, 60s, uh, but late 50s, early and uh, throughout the 60s. But otherwise, it's been conservative, and that makes sense because people get on the court and then they're on there forever, and so it always sort of is a backward-looking, uh, you know, uh, 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 institution. And of course, it's applying law, which requires it to look backward. It can't sort of look towards the most progressive ideas of the future. It has to link them to the past. But the other thing that political scientists have found is that the court does not um, generally depart very far from where the politics of the country is, even though it's they're not subject to re-election. Their legitimacy rests, I think, on two things. One, that they are perceived as acting as lawgivers and law interpreters and not politicians. But two, paradoxically, not being too out of step with where the American people are politically. And so you know, the, the, the one time where the court really was significantly out of step with the American people was in the um, during the progressive era after, uh, uh, you know, there were tre- tremendous economic difficulties led to an effort to try to buoy up the poor, buoy up workers, protect consumers rights. And the Supreme Court was just striking these laws down left and right. This was in the fir- early part of the 20th century after the Depression. You know, increase the demand for uh, a social safety net and the like, and the court continued to strike those down. Uh, it got to the point where um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the president, threatened to pack the court to name a whole bunch of new justices, uh, ostensibly on the ground that the old justices were too old and were overworked, and but in fact because he wanted to shift the political balance of power. He didn't win in that. that people pushed back against that. They thought that would but the court shifted and the court reversed its prior opposition to the social safety net, reversed its prior opposition to labor laws and consumer protection laws and the like, and allowed those laws to be to, to go into place. Mr. David, is that a slightly kind of taking a too optimistic view of lessons to be learned from history? Because isn't one of the differences now that if you look at the right flank of the Supreme Court, it's much there, there are many more ideologues than would have been the case. I mean, they're not appointing people like Sandra Day O'Connor who were sort of right but centrist anymore. They're appointing people who have a have an agenda. As you say, they're all appoint, they're all nominated by the Federalist Society. They they all come with a lifetime track record of fairly. Um, right-wing views uh, of the world. And one can see that someone like Chief Justice Roberts is someone who's trying to bridge the gap, see his dissent in Obamacare, for example. But 
can one really say that of the other justices or, or am I being um, overly cynical and pessimistic? You know, I think, I think uh, clearly Chief Justice Roberts recognizes the importance of, the, of sort of maintaining the legitimacy of the court by not having it be perceived as too political. Um, I, I, you know, I think it's too early to tell with Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Gorsuch, uh, who are relatively recent appointees. But I, you know, I hold out hope that they, too, would understand the, the sort of important role that uh, legitimacy plays in the power of the court over time. And so, you know, I, I think I guess what I'm what I'm saying is that long term, what's much more important is whether the kind of majority of I think actually the majority of people in the United States have a liberal views over the over a minority that have conservative views. But the majority that have liberal views tend to be poorer, tend to be younger, uh, tend to vote less. Uh, if and also tend to be divided among themselves. If they can come together in a sort of progressive unity, um, you know, I think I don't think the court will be able to block all that much of what they do. Um, and I don't, you know, I, as I said, with the exception of that, like 15 year period, the Supreme Court has never been a real major force for progressive social change in this country. If there's a, a, a force for progressive social change, it's legislatures. Rather than, uh, rather than the court. So, and I, I, don't, I don't think it'll get in the way. But, but we won't know unless we can first get you know people who believe in uh, a strong progressive vision to come together and not fight each other rather than fight the enemy. Um, yeah, David, you, you, I know from your book Engines of Liberty, you believe in the ability of people to forge alliances, progressive and unprogressive. Um, but that's a kind of rallying call. You could bring people together overcome your differences, recognize what's important. But um, in my more pessimistic moments, I do wonder whether the divides in American society have become so great and the trust in institutions and information coming from government has become so um, profound that whoever wins in November, that may be something it's very hard to mend. I mean, what do you think about that? I think that's a that's a real uh, a, a legitimate concern. Uh, there's a fantastic book that came out um, just this past uh, few months uh, by a guy named Ezra Klein called "Why We Are Polarized," which is an incredible review of just how the United States has come to this deep polariz- polarized position, and how once you come to that position, you know, it, 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 anyone who tries to break from it you know, has hell to pay. The, 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 the way to succeed is by being more partisan than the next guy, not by trying to bridge the gap. Those who try to bridge the gap get punished. And that's what I think what you're seeing in the Republican Party now. I think there are a lot of Republicans who really don't like Trump, but they know that if they are seen as breaking from the, the party and, and, and uh, you know, standing out on their own, they're very likely to be attacked, 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 and to lose their seat. You know, so all you see is, People who are giving up their seat anyway, speaking out sometimes, and Mitt Romney, and that's about it, right? So, um, so it's a, it's a. But I will say that sometimes crises have a way of, you know, disrupting a pattern, and I think this crisis is one that really shows us, both within the United States and in the world at large, that we're all in this together. You know, that if we don't solve this problem for the poor and the disenfranchised. Uh, you know, in the inner city, 
we will not solve this problem for the rest of us. And so, uh, you know, and, and, and if we are going to get ourselves out of this global recession, it's going to require tremendous public investment. Uh, and so, you know, I think we may see, I think there is some hope for uh, a coming together driven by this crisis. Sorry, I, I was, well, I, I, was, I was just going to observe that it, it does resonate with some of the things that have happened in the Conservative Party here, the ruling Conservative Party after the last election, where there was a kind of cleaning out of the pro-rule of law, right. pro-international co- cooperation conservatives. And yet, and yet we nev- nonetheless now have a situation where the most extreme right wing government we've had for many years is has effectively nationalized employment in this country. Yeah, you know? yeah, so, yeah. Necessity, the mother of invention. Can I turn to the um, international um, yeah. picture? And we see across the globe, really, a reaction from lots of nations, which is kind of um, pull up the drawbridges. And there's nowhere that's been more apparent than that than America with uh, the kind of slogans of America first, which it seems to be America first and America last. Um, at the same time, it's undermining international responses to the COVID crisis, not least in its criticisms of the WHO. We see China trying to fill a void in terms of international leadership. From your perspective of someone who thinks deeply about international human rights, what are your concerns and thoughts as to what we're seeing in this global picture? Well, I think it, uh, you know, it's, it's deeply concerning. I mean, it's been, you know, the, the, the Trump administration's approach towards the international legal order has been concerning from day one. Uh, and, and, you know, now it's just all that much more important uh, and much more disturbing that he has taken that approach. I mean, we have essentially bowed out. We have bowed out of the international legal order in any meaningful way, except as a violator, um, but not as a, as a norm reinforcer in, in any way, shape, or form. And as, you know, as your introduction suggests, our history is not, uh, is not perfect, but I do think that, you know, I feel more comfortable with, uh, with, uh, you know, our seeking to being one of the, uh, countries that promotes human rights around the world and really tries to do that than our stepping back and creating a vacuum into which we invite China to come in because, you know, no matter how problematic you may think the China, the American history is, uh, in terms of human rights and, and the rule of law, uh, China is a, a lot worse, right? So, um, so I, you know, there's, I, I don't think you can let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And, and I think that in fact, we were not perfect, but we were, uh, we, we did more good than bad in terms of advancing and expanding human rights. Uh, but we've now abandoned that. I will say, and, 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 and in this time, right, when you have a global pandemic that's going to have global uh, implications that we'll, we will be living with for the rest of our lives, um, we need an internationally coordinated strategy at the same time as everyone is so afraid that they're, you know, circling the wagons and wanting to protect, you know, their own people first and, you know, screw the rest of them. So it's all the more important that we have some kind of institutions that we can trust, like the WHO, to think about this in a not parochial way, uh, because this is not a parochial disease. I mean, even if the Democrats win in November, Biden takes the presidency, 
in terms of engaging the U.S. body politics in international affairs? I mean, is, is, is the genie out of the bottle? I mean, is it something that can we see once again America sort of taking the lead in promotion of the International Criminal Court or uh, 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 re-signing up for the Paris Agreement and its uh, successors? Or is, it, is, that, is, is, is that era of American leadership over? You know, I don't know. I, I, I think that remains to be seen. I don't think there's ever been a kind of groundswell of support in the U.S., any more than in the UK for, you know, international uh, law and international institutions. I think, you know, the, the, it's been more a grass tops kind of uh, effort than a grassroots effort from day one. Those grass tops still understand the value. Um, we, you know, m- many of the, you know, many of Trump's biggest critics are, you know, the national security kind of uh, intelligentsia in the United States who are both Democrat, both Democratic and Republican, who understand the importance of having, um, you know, having a set of international norms in place. And, uh, and, and I think they will come back, they will come rushing back in if uh, President, if, if Joe Biden is elected president, uh, and they'll do what they can to restore uh, this, uh, but it's, it's going to be a challenge. David, can I can I just take, follow up on that thought about um about how to uh, make the most of this? If this is a sort of reset moment, as you described it, this uh, sort of we're all in this together um, internationally and uh, and globally, because um, it, it is it's a real challenge for the UK. Um, this has all happened whilst we're frantically trying to negotiate a, um, an agreement with the EU about the future relationship, um, and when the sort of uh, fog begins to clear post immediate crisis on COVID, there's clearly going to be an absolute imperative to um, re-engage with multilateral institutions and so on. But um, at the same time, to engage grassroots in why those multilateral institutions matter. And the thing I think that's puzzling a lot of us at the moment is, um, is how is that going to happen? What's going to be the catalyst to it in practical terms? How do we actually persuade governments um, and assuming, assuming that we're both um, with the same governments for a while, uh, how do we persuade them to of the importance of international leadership generally and the importance of multilateral institutions on the back of this current crisis? Well, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a great question. I, 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 but I do think that this, again, this crisis has underscored the importance of real leadership, not populist pandering, but real leadership. And, you know, the, the, the leaders that people are looking to as sort of they're doing it well, you know, Angela Merkel or the, you know, the, the, uh, New Zealand, you know, Australia, there are places that have been doing it well. And then they, and then they always, you know, contrast them with Donald Trump, Boris Johnson, these sort of populist panderers. And so, you know, the, the, I think that this, I, you know, my hope is that this crisis sort of brings a recognition that our leaders need to be actual leaders. They need to work together. They can't just play to the base. They can't just you know, tweet. They can't, uh, you know, just be anti. They have to be uh, engaged. Uh, and, and, and we're not going to solve the problem if we don't. I mean, the, 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 the economic fallout of this is, going, is, is, as we see, global. The only way that you, re, you fix a global problem is through a global response. So, you know, in, it, it, there, is, there is this chance that it will bring us together not just you know us in the United States, the conservative and liberal, but us in the world 
recognizing that there's a, a, a real need here to, to be responsible leaders to deal with the problem that affects us all. David, as I said at the beginning, I've been reading your work for many years and your uh, essays on the response to 9-11 and what was a seminal book for us, which is the torture memos that you wrote. Feed, I've used it in court cases uh, on um, UK's responses and the way we got caught up with the Americans um, post 9-11. And um, one question that constantly I think about um, and um, you're almost the perfect person for me to ask, ask you. It's a question that toyed in my mind for a long time, which is what was the impact of President Obama's decision very early on in his administration not to prosecute those responsible for the administration's endorsement of the CIA program of secret prisons and the use of extreme torture methods, which you, you, amongst others, brought to public attention. And now we also, you know, 18 months ago, we saw in detail in the Senate committee's summary of their investigation. And we live in a world in which there was no prosecution for that, no accountability, effectively impunity at such a level that the two lawyers responsible for the torture memos of those, one is now a federal judge and the other a professor at UC Berkeley, would America look very different if Obama had made a different decision and there had been public accountability for what appear to be high crimes? Yeah. I don't know. You know, I, it's uh, alternative history. Uh, I don't know what, um, what, what consequence that would have had in, for the broader set of issues that we have seen beset us uh, since since 2016, um, which I think were a response, you know, in, in large part, a response to uh, the, our first black president uh, that, that really, uh, you know, sort of energized and engaged a, 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 a kind of retrogressive part of this of this nation to get more engaged um, through the Tea Party and, and, and all the way up to Trump's election. That I don't think would have been changed by the, you know, accountability for um, the torture uh, that that we uh, inflicted on people uh, after 9/11. Um, but you know, it, it, but I I uh, from the beginning uh, argued for the importance of accountability. I prosecution is not the only way to have accountability. I think prosecution would have been extraordinarily difficult because. Uh, you know, there were Justice Department memos that said that it was OK because, you know, the attorney general was behind it. And, and so, you know, how do you actually prosecute the underlings when the people in charge have said, go ahead and do it? But, the, you know, the, the, the thing was, we never had a real kind of uh, we didn't have a m moment of accountability until that is we, we had the Senate uh, Intelligence Committee report. And I actually think the Senate Intelligence Committee report is hugely important. And, and I, I do think that the, the, the struggle over torture and the rule of law in this country uh, after, you know, it, when it became uh, known what was going on, leading up to the Senate Intelligence Committee report, which was a profound critique of what happened, does give, is a form of accountability. And, and, it, and it means that it will be harder the next time around 
to engage in this kind of conduct. You know, we have you know, Trump has has done a lot of terrible things. We have not heard any allegations of him authorizing torture. I, I think you know, I think there is a way in which we kind of in a in a ultimately forced some accountability out of the system. John, you one of the one of the authors of the memo, who you say is a professor at UC Berkeley. It's true he's a professor at UC Berkeley, but he's a professor at UC Berkeley because he had a tenured position at UC Berkeley before he went into the government. Uh, and then he went back to that position and no other law school will hire him. But he still because... writes editorials in the New York Times on a range, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. On a range well, of subjects. Well, we believe in freedom of speech. Even for people who... <laughs> Can I ask you the, the last T question related to the rule of law from me? Um, which is on a slightly more kind of metaphysical level, really, about Trump and the rule of law. Because here we have somebody in the most powerful position in the world, the most prominent politician in the world, and he's also perhaps the most brazen liar that one has ever, ever kind of come across in a political position. I mean, politicians have always lied, but... This is on a different scale and of a different nature. Now, he's obviously been doing it during the crisis. Uh, you know, you can pick any example, denying, he, saying he was joking when he was talking about injections of disinfectants. And he's obviously done it throughout his time in the administration from day one when he was talking about the crowds on the inauguration. And it certainly for me, I find it, challenging. It's, it's bewildering, it's discombobulating, it kind of almost plays with one's sense of reality. How, what's your take on how that might impact? I mean, generally for how one sees politics and how people see politics, but rule of law as well. So I think it's a symptom of our polarization. Uh, you know, it's he can get away with as many lies as he can get away with because we live in a world in which there is Fox News uh, view of the world in which he never lies, and MSNBC's view of the world in which he always lies, um, and you know, it's like pick your pick your choice, right? There's there's no truth. There's just one very biased view or another very biased view, and and social media, uh, I think, has uh, exacerbated that problem because we all are you know sort of hearing from our own echo chambers, and because the most extreme uh, views are the ones that get uh, that, 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 that get um, uh, amplified, uh, and because you know social. You know, I think at one point we thought the response to um, you know bad speech is more speech. There, you know, if there are lies, you tell the truth, and truth will win out in the marketplace of ideas. Right? That was the theory, and then you know. And I think that actually worked to some degree. It's roughly, you know, not perfectly, but nothing is perfect about uh, human humankind. But it roughly worked. But and, and until we democratize, ironically, until we democratize uh, access to voice through the through social media and the internet, at which point there's you know no very little editorial judgment being uh, being exercised, and it's just the herd. Uh, and the herd can be driven by all kinds of things other than truth. And so um, I think it's a deep, deep problem. And it's a deep problem for our democracy, because at the end of the day, our democracy turns on our 
you know, at least agreeing on the facts and then disagreeing about what's the best way to respond to the facts. But when we can't even agree on the facts, uh, then how can you have, and we have no trusted sort of authority uh, to look to, to try to figure out what, you know, what's right, what's wrong, what's truthful, what's false. Uh, it gets very, very difficult to have an engaged democratic dialogue. Uh, but, but here's what I'll say coming back, you know, as I, 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 this is my, I guess this is my theme here, right? There is hope. <laughs> uh, and, and, and I think there is hope because boy, never more than now do, sh should people recognize the importance of getting beyond, you know, sound bites and disinformation and getting to truth. When you're dealing with a, with a, an enemy that is as, as deadly as uh, the coronavirus. You can't be in the in the business of just tweeting anymore. You have to be in the business of responsible, fact-based decision making. And you know, so again, there's hope that this crisis will cause people to recognize that this this new medium and the the, the kind of polarization that it has brought has real costs. David, that's um, that's a brilliant and insightful point, which to draw it to a close, but. Before you go, I've got two short questions for you, both very straightforward. First one is this, and you can only answer in one word. Who's going to win in November? Biden. Right answer, I hope. Uh, and the, and of course, I, if you asked me that four or five years ago, I would have said Clinton with just as much As certainty. would we, and we would have said we'd still be in Europe. Um, then finally, your a book recommendation. We're asking everybody who comes on the podcast for a recommendation to read in the event that you get some time during lockdown. What, what's yours? Well, reading has been, you know, my savior during this lockdown. Uh, you know, it's I, I, never more than now do I need to something that takes me out of the per, per, the moment and into some other world. Um, and two fantastic books that I've read during this during the lockdown. One is called Heavy um, by Kiese Lemon, and it's uh, K-I-E-S-E-L-A-Y-M-O-N, Heavy. It's a memoir by a young black man who grew up poor in Mississippi with a single mother who was uh, getting her doctorate, actually, in, in, in some, uh, um, I can't remember in what, and she instilled in him a love of words and reading and uh, and he ultimately becomes a, 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 a professor uh, and um, and writes this incredible memoir about his journey from that, you know, deep south. Uh, and he does it in, in the most beautiful black English uh, you will ever read. And with real discussion, really interesting discussions about the difference between black English and, and uh, well, I should say black American and uh, white American. Uh, it's just a fantastic, fantastic memoir. And then the second um, is a novel called The Guest Book by Sarah Blake, uh, which is a very, a very different uh, perspective on life in America. It's a it's a novel. It's a, a three generation novel about a upper crust wasp family living on the Upper East Side in New York who owns an island in Maine and about the uh, the, the various secrets in their in their very you know tight um, uh, lives that ultimately get uh, uh, get disclosed. Really, really beautifully written. A very powerful uh, book as well. And both of them just take you out of this moment and into a very different world. And 
Boy, do we need that. David, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. So, Helen Murray, fascinating listening to David speak about the situation in America and where that puts us all in the globe. Helen, what are your thoughts on what we've just listened to? Well, I'm, I mean, like, like Obama, David managed to end on a note of hope in a fairly desperate um, situation. But I think um, what it makes me think is that there is this um, symbiotic relationship between the um, loss of trust, loss of truth, loss of trust in belief in what governments and institutions say, and then loss of trust in the institutions themselves. And I do think the trick is in um, trying to find some popular support and understanding for why um, institutions and law matter. And that's, I think, the challenge that um, people who believe in those things need to get their message across um, in a pretty soon. Yes, like Helen, I also uh, really like David's optimism, especially uh, towards the end there. We're recording this on... VE Day, of course. And uh, I don't know if any of you have watched the coverage on the BBC, but um, at one level, uh, it's quite depressing because it's so um, exclusively backward looking. I was waiting for the bit where Angela Merkel and Boris Johnson do a joint statement about the future, but uh, uh, it would have been a quite a long wait. Um, but I do think that um, David's right, that this moment is a real um, opportunity as well as a terrible, terrible crisis. Um, and I think the real trick is going to be how we convert this realisation about uh, interconnectedness and into a realisation of the importance of the multilateral institutions and the international legal order. Uh, Boris Johnson gave quite an interesting speech at the um, Funders Conference last week on COVID, where he talked all the right language about us all being in this together, about this not being a national competition and so on. Uh, but it was all about finding a vaccine. It was purely about collaboration for science. And there's no mention there. Um, of the importance of the system of international governance and international legal orders and so on. So I think that the challenge for all of us um, is how to make that connection between that realisation that's now dawning on everybody um, and actually re-engaging with the international system. And also, I mean, not we, you know, we're lawyers, but also there's, the real danger is that in the moment of economic crisis that follows this, we turn inward and turn away not only from national institutions, but from multinational approaches to solving the economic crisis that will flow from this. Yeah, the most frightening thing I read this week was a research paper from the US Fed, from the Federal Reserve, uh, which showed a historical study about how the 1918 flu pandemic uh, was responsible for a huge increase in support for the Nazi party. So, I mean, I think we're all right to identify this as a challenge, but actually, how nice to end the podcast on a note of optimism as well after listening to um, a speaker. So thank you both. Thank you to Rachel Murray, our producer, and thank you for listening.